Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, I'm sorry it's been so long since we last recorded an interview, but um, there have been reasons for that. I've been very busy with this, that and the other. Now, I'm sitting, it's an afternoon in London, a summer afternoon in London, and it is absolutely hammering it down with rain. And I'm sitting uh, in the pub or just outside the pub, uh, watching the traffic go past. You can probably hear it. And I'm sitting with my good friend, Charlie Morris. Now, Charlie is a, a very interesting guy. He's worked for... How long did you work for HSBC for? Uh, 17 years. 17 years of fund manager at HSBC, set up various funds for them, all did very well. He left last year. I've been wanting to get an interview off him for this programme for absolutely ages. And he's gone, while he's been under the arm of HSBC, he said, no, no, no I can't do it. But he's finally come out, uh, if you'll uh, forgive that expression, and um, Charlie also writes a very good newsletter called Atlas Pulse, which is free. Uh, so you should subscribe to that. And Charlie likes Bitcoin. He likes, sometimes he likes gold and silver. And sometimes he likes, sometimes he doesn't like gold and silver. And we're going through one of those times when he doesn't like it. But I think we're coming, we'll soon be at a time when he is starting to like it. Now, Charlie did an interview on IG this morning. And he, and he was reporting back to me on this interview. And he said a statistic that absolutely blew my mind. So we're going to start that interview with this statistic, Charlie? Yes, it's um, on IG's website. If you look up um, gold or look up silver, their ticker, um, on silver, 80, 88% of IG clients are currently long silver, so just 12% are short. So a lot of people are saying that um, sentiment in precious metals is poor, but um, that's quite the opposite. 88% of IG clients, IG, by the way, for our American listeners, it's like the UK's biggest spread betting company. So it's, it's where people make leverage bets on the market. And 88% of IG clients are long silver. Yeah, pretty staggering stuff. Of course, sentiment's a complex subject because, you know, there are people walking past us. What they think of gold or silver doesn't matter unless they're participants in the market. So what matters is what the, you know, how much is coming out of the ground and how much um, demand there is from industry and investment and so on. And, and, and really, to cap it all in the short term, investment flows uh, and leveraged investment flows are, are probably the most important thing. So it's what those people think matter much more than what the person who's not in the market thinks. And um, clearly, market participants are very bullish. You can add to that the, um, the amount of number of ounces in the silver ETFs. And it's something like 840 million. And, and it hasn't fallen at all in the last three years, despite the price going down by two thirds. So um, I would say that um, silver investors are still very bullish. So, what you're saying is we haven't had the washout that you would hope to see, uh, given the extreme price that silver is at. It's at multi-year lows, $14.50 $14 at the moment. That's right. I mean, we've had a big break from $15.50. We had the sort of, um, the level I calculated of $17.70 was the point at which all the ETFs in silver since um, inception 
we're at break-even point. So um, the, 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 the mean investor above 1770 was um, in profit. And um, below that price, he's, he's, in, he's in loss. I think the silver ETF to destroy $3 billion so far now, uh, at the price of $14.50. Um, we're now in free fall. Uh, volatility is still low. That's very important because when you've got high volatility, that usually marks the turning point of a trend. And we've still got very low vol on silver and gold and the gold-silver ratio. Interesting, but let's make a point on the gold-silver ratio. Um, that's around 74, 75 at the moment. At the bottom of a bear market, you'd expect to be into the high 80s or 100 or possibly the 120. So uh, I'd expect the silver market to absolutely crash from here relative to gold. So what, what, what kind of numbers are you talking? $10, $8? Well, I think the 08 lows is a broad target for commodity prices in general. general. So if you look at palladium, platinum, copper, silver, gold, um, oil, uh, all these things. I mean, the, the, the soft commodities have already got down there to the 08 lows. Um, but the metals really have taken their time. I mean, you could also say that gold is at a, uh, a significant premium to oil. So the average over the last um, 20 years, from memory, is around 15 times. So it's about 15 barrels of, barrels of um, oil uh, for an ounce of gold. Um, it's currently on about 24, I think. Um, again, I said from memory. Uh, and, and so gold needs to fall by 40% to catch down with the price of oil uh, and mean revert. And mean reversion is something that's very clear over a long period of time. So off the top of my head, I think gold ended up in 2008. I think it went back to 670 at one stage in 2008. Do you, do you know the number? Uh, from memory, 730. Dominic, we, we are on a busy road here. I've got no charge in front of me um, and we're drinking beer. So, um, <laughs> so 730 is my guess. It's something like that. Anyway, it's a lot lower than we are now. So that's a very bearish outlook. Now, Charlie, I should say you've, you've come on the, the, the programme and given that bearish outlook, you know, you and I go to a lot of the same dinners, we read a lot of the same newsletters, we talk to a number of the same people. I think, to a lesser or greater degree, our politics are similar. You're maybe a bit less extreme than I am. Um, so, you know, you are un- somebody who understands the value of gold, what gold is, what gold means, and yet you're calling it lower. Can we expect to see it higher after it goes lower? I know that sounds like a really banal question, but what I'm asking you is, I suppose what you're describing is that we're we're headed into the final capitulation, but we're not at the final capitulation. What can we expect after the final capitulation? Well, let's um, talk through that. We had a peak in 2011. Obviously, we've had a three-year, three-plus-year bear market. Um, it's going to be, um, you know, one of the longest bear markets on record. I think because it's gone on so long, that was one of the clues um, that the 1,200 mark, for my, to my mind, wasn't going to hold. Um, because if it was going to turn, it would have turned um, some time ago. But let's go back to basics of what the hell gold is. Um, it's supposed to protect you against uh, purchasing power, uh, protect purchasing power over long periods of time. And in simple terms, you know, we can look at future inflation expectations, and the bond market tells us that. If you look at the difference between the price of tips, which protect you against inflation, and conventional bonds that don't, and, and, and they give an implied future inflation rate. That was telling you just a few weeks ago that the dollar was going to be worth 54 cents in purchasing terms in 30 years' time. So you're going to lose half your money in dollars. Um, over 30 years' time, and that was that was known. That's not a surprise. And um, as inflation expectations fall, that means that you need less of a hedge. So, quite rationally, the price of gold should be lower. Now, if you do this interest rate model, which I publish in Atlas Pulse, it tells you that gold's worth about a thousand dollars. It's inexact, but uh, give it 10% error either way. Um, yeah, we're getting to the fair value zone. Bear markets tend to go below that. The other way to measure gold is to, uh, is, is to look at really the golden constants and compare it to, again, things like oil, houses, wages, um, food prices over long periods of time. Uh, and again, that takes you to the $900, $1,000 mark. 
and um, and, and so I'm pretty confident that you know a thousand dollars is a big round number. Uh, you know, it'll tend to be a support level for a short period of time. Maybe it'll hold, maybe it won't. But if it goes below, then, then the retest is the 08 lows. At that point, gold's cheap and it's um, undervalued. It's a fantastic asset. Presumably, the mining stocks at that time will be uh, severely undervalued. And um, so, if we get this capitulation, then I think that you, the, that's the time to bet the ranch and buy gold mining shares. Okay. One of the things you, you said just before we began this interview to me was that it would be a lot better. This bear market is too drawn out and it hasn't fallen far enough. You'd much rather see it fall quickly and lower. Yeah, because you want the vol up. Um, volatility needs to be high before you can have confidence that we're at a low. I mean, there are two kinds of lows. One's a sort of long, flat one, which um, we've had that for the last two years, but unfortunately the breakout very clearly is downwards, not upwards. So uh, that proves that the last consolidation was, um, was, was bearish, not bullish. But... Um, um, so, you know, we could have another one of those which goes on for ages and then we have a bullish breakout thereafter. What I prefer to see is a high volatility low, which is a V-shaped correction. So we get to a very low price that you know, disgusts everyone, it causes some problems. You get a few uh, bankruptcies like Glenron um, uh, or Glencore, you know, plus Enron <laughs> equals Glenron. They've got $52 billion of debt, a falling copper price, we'll see that. You want a few high profile bankruptcies, and that marks the low. I think that some people say that the cash cost thing matters or the all-in cost of gold production. It really doesn't, not in the short term. In the long term, of course, it matters a lot. Um, but in the short term, the market can go below production costs for, 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 for a period of time. And also the, uh, the cash cost low is, uh, the cash cost um, is materially below the all-in. You wouldn't invest um, uh, below $1,000 gold, but you might um, run your mine at a materially lower price because it might generate cash in the short term. So. I think, I think that's another consideration. The market can stand some serious pain to the downside. Now, um, I'm sorry to have such a long answer, but what would make it really bullish? Well, that's very simple. That's um, an increase in long-term expectations um, for inflation. So that means the dollar's going to be worth less in the future and the pound and so on. And, um, and, and that's going to happen, um, probably because we have extremely uh, bizarre monetary policies in the future, or we have a lot of confidence in the bond market or the system of money, uh, something along those lines. And then we will see a takeoff in the inflation rate. And when that happens, then the um, price targets for gold uh, sharply turn around and go into the thousands. Do you think central bankers are doing a good job, or do you think they're experimenting and don't really know what they're doing? I think they do know what they're doing. I think they're uh, very clever, but they've got a very difficult situation. And um, you know, sometimes, sometimes um, there, there's nothing you can do. I mean, quite simply, you've got far too much debt in the world. I think I subscribe to that view. So, so do a lot of um, sensible people, not just libertarians and gold bugs. And uh, you know, there is far too much money debt in the world. And um, you know, the only way you can get rid of that is by uh, default or inflation. I mean, to pay it back is a hundred-year job. So. Um, Personally, I don't think the modern politicians could be asked with that. Um, Charlie, now, in your days working for HSBC, HSBC was, of course, the custodian of GLD's gold, and you saw that gold. Tell us about that. Yes, um, only a few people have visited the vaults, and um, um, HSBC is obviously a fantastic organisation. I had a wonderful career there for 17 years, so I have hold them in high regard, and maybe some, Dominic, some of your viewers take a different view, but I hold them in high regard. And I visited the vault, and um, I'm proud to say that um, all the GLD gold is there. I touched it. Um, I wasn't allowed to take a picture for security reasons. I can't tell you where the vault is. Um, it was, but it was pretty staggering. And, um, and if any bank I would trust to, to hold gold, uh, it would be HSBC. So 
just give us an idea. I mean, so it was in a vault somewhere, so you were underground. Did it, did it glisten a lot? Did it rebound off the light? How much was it? Was it on pallets? Was I underground? Was I overground? Where was it? Can't say. <laughs> Can't say. You'd have to, I'd have to kill you, Dominic, um, and destroy your phone. Um, it, 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 was, it was highly secure. I mean, it was like a Bond, James Bond film going into the vault. Okay. And did it look beautiful? Oh, stunning. Absolutely stunning. Mesmerising stuff. To see large quantities of gold in one place is, is truly captivating. In fact, it probably kept me a bull for a couple more years than I should have been. <laughs> you thought this company's actually worth something seeing that. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to bear in mind that gold is this timeless thing that doesn't destruct. It's got a high density, all these wonderful physical properties. But it doesn't create growth. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there and looks at you and looks pretty. That's all it does. I love it. I think the price is falling, and I think one day there'll be another bull market. But, but right here, right now, one's got to remember that, that um, it's just a long-term um, a store of value. That's all it is. Um, going back to silver very briefly, Charlie, um, there's a kind of real allegiance between a lot of Americans and silver. It's kind of a patriotic thing. That silver used to be the American dollar. Do you think that kind of sense of patriotism is one of the causes of this kind of bizarre bullishness in silver in the face of a falling price. I think there are a few people who have been promoting silver who should hold some responsibility for getting people too excited. And uh, frankly, a lot of the stories are, uh, are not true. Um, and there's always an excuse, you know, where, you know, everyone's a chartist when it's going up. And then when it's going down, people ditch the charts and find another reason to buy it. And, and more recently, you know, solar panels have been one of those things. And, and growth in solar is huge. But solar efficiency is, um, is even greater. Um, you know, solar panels were less than 1% efficient um, in the 1970s. They're now 42% efficient at the cutting edge. In the future, they'll be as cheap as wallpaper and they'll be transparent. And they won't contain any silver at all. Um, already silver consumption in solar is hard to measure because if you want to know about this, don't ask a silver bar. Don't go to a silver site and hear their view because they've made it up go to a physics site or go to a solar panel manufacturer's site or a science site and they'll barely mention the word silver. It's a, it's a classic case of substitution. Um, I think it's true in all commodities. We've seen it in oil. In 2006, George Bush said that America was addicted to oil in a state of the union address and, and, and he allowed um, you know, shale and so on. And what's happened is we now have 4.3 barrels of oil a day that we don't need globally. And so the downward pressure on the price is immense. There's been efficiencies, there's been solar panels, wind farms, um, software packages, all sorts of things and storage technologies that have made us need less oil. Maybe it's slowing China too, I don't know, but, but, but whatever it is, there's, there's more of it than we need. And this is true in every single commodity. When, it, when it's too, the price is too high, um, the ingenuity of science finds a substitution. Talk about uh, your seaweed story. Oh, uh, yeah. So um, there was a great British scientist, and um, his name escapes me, which is embarrassing. But, um, but he was a, a German Jew, came to Britain in the 1930s to escape Nazis. And um, the Mosquito was the greatest plane of the Second World War. Everyone says it's a Spitfire, but it was the Mosquito. And one of the reasons they didn't survive was because they were all made of balsa wood, uh, which clearly... Just, just describe what the Mosquitoes did. Um, my, my old Latin teacher used to fly a mosquito. Oh, he used brilliant. to tell stories about him when we were What a guy. So they won Actually, the... he was the navigator. He was the guy... Anyway, yeah. So they, they won the Battle of the Atlantic and they um, won the Battle of Britain. And um, Mo Mosquitoes were, were fighter planes built out of Portugal. They were, they were, were they bombers as well? They were bombers and fighter planes. And they were very fast, they were very light. 
And um, I'm not a plain buff, so don't ask me any more questions. Okay. I only talk about what I know about, Dominic. Okay. You know that. I don't make things up. And um, um, But basically, the, the, this plane was um, in high demand. And obviously, the Battle of the Atlantic was a challenge and, 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 and getting supplies across from the Americas. And Balsa came from, um, from South America. And so the ships had to come all the way around and um, across the Atlantic. And so there were bolts of supply problems um, in the Second World War. So this German scientist found a substitute, which was um, something that's plentiful in Britain, which is seaweed. We have a large coastline. And um, he had made a composite foam material, which had the same strength and weight properties as balsa wood. Um, it was never used in the Mosquito because the war ended just so it was ready for production. But it's a wonderful case. Of, two years. In just two years, how, um, uh, how science overcame a major commodity problem. And you, you kind of think, you know, all the stuff you read about, you know, palladium and platinum demand in cars or silver demand and this, that and the other, if there really is a supply problem, that doesn't necessarily result in a rocketing price over the long term. Science will find some kind of substitute. It's actually more bearish because science will find a substitute. They will find another way. And they're not going to pay $20 million an ounce for anything. They're just not going to do it. They're, they're, they're going to pay um, less than the current price is because they spotted the problem and they'll find a solution. OK, very good. Now, one of the other subjects I'd like to touch on is um, George Osborne. Um, we, were, we were talking about him and his attitude towards the housing market. Um, it seems to be a market that subtly... There's a number of things that George Osborne seems to understand and he seems to be trying to reach the same goal but via a different route. And it seems that he wants to bring down the house price, UK house prices. I don't know whether it's deliberate or not, but, but certainly the package that, that was presented to us, I mean, we've got very high stamp duty now, particularly at the top end. And, of course, the wealth creation in the UK property market starts in London. There's no question about that. The money comes into, into London, and then some, some um, middle-aged guy thinks, my God, my house of Clapham has travelled, and he moves to the country because his family are aging, growing up, rather. And... And that's a perfectly normal, reasonable situation. But, but it all starts with the overvalued, ridiculous properties not far from where we're sitting. And, um, and billionaires, you know, they don't care. They pay 50 million for a house, no problem. But we put the stamp duty up that one. Two, we've made it less attractive for the billionaires to come to Britain with, uh, uh, you know, prodding the non-domiciles. Three, he's, um, he, he's, he's um, put some tax constraints on buy to let. In, a se- in essence, he, he doesn't like the idea that um, debt is tax-free and equity is taxed. He wants to balance that. And so he wants the tax burden to be, to be more um, shared between debt and equity in the future. It, it, it's a complex area of tax law, which will be interesting to follow. But he's just begun. And, um, and we'll see how it affects things like private equity and buy-to-let mortgages and so on. Uh, but then finally, there's the supply side. You know, he wants to build a lot of houses. There's um, councils being told to uh, free up land to build houses. They want the American model. They want people to have cheaper homes. They've got more money to spend and have a nice life, rather than this ridiculous situation like Britain, where property is some kind of god. Property is some kind of god. In British culture, I mean, you know, in the American culture, you say they like the silver dollar. Fine. I mean, that's... that's uh, and they're probably right in the long term, by the way. I mean, they might, might not be right in the next six months, but in the long term, why not? I'd, I'd certainly hold silver for the long term, um, for my grandchildren or something, but I wouldn't hold it as an investment for the next 12 months. Um, the property in this country is just seen as um, the equivalent of the NASDAQ to the Americans. So do you think that's why the S&P never seems to go down and the NASDAQ never seems to go down and, and why the housing market never seems to go down because they're constantly propped up? 
no, I think the I think what we're seeing in stock markets. Don't forget, American stocks did terribly badly between 2000 and 2008. So the American stocks were really, really strong in 2000. They, they've gone up a hell of a long way since 1982, particularly the Nasdaq. And everything crashed, and we know that. But then between 2002 and 2007, 2008, um, American stocks really did pretty badly because the dollar fell by a third, and the American stock market kind of lagged the rest of the world. When, when the U.S. is doing badly, it's actually quite good fun as an investor because crappy places like Nigeria go through the roof. And, um, you know, as soon as there's a bit of outflow from the U.S., it's a really fun time to be a global investor because everything bloody goes up. You know, commodities, rocket, EM, um, frontier markets, all this stuff goes absolutely nuts. And, um, and that's because there's so much money in America that just a little bit coming out is a lot of fun for the rest of the world. Don't forget, places like Indonesia, Indonesia have a lower market cap than Apple, you know? And this is one of the most popular... <laughs> it's, one, it's one of the most populated countries in the world. So it's really funny um, watching this happen. So the US, you know, we've got a strong dollar policy now and uh, the dollar's going to rise... Do they have a strong dollar policy? When? In, now. In the, I mean, exactly. We're having a strong dollar, but do they have a strong dollar well, policy? Well, they, they, they have a weak dollar policy, do they? They're first at hike rates and, and the first to uh, break the they jobs. They haven't hiked rates. They haven't hiked rates. Well, they first to say they're going to hike rates. Yeah. <laughs> There's a slight difference there. Sorry. Uh, Janet Yellen just said it like a week ago. Okay. We are going to hike rates in 2015. Because she probably means it. But they uh, said in 2013. They were going to do it in 2014. You, no, they said they might do it. But this time they said they're going to do it. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe they don't do it. I don't know. But... But the bottom line is, at the, uh, the margin, the U.S. growth rate is much lower than it was in the past. I mean, 50s to the 80s, it grew at 4%, and the 80s to the present day, it's 2%. So it's, it's, not the, it's not the growth machine it was, but it's better than most other places. And so in currency land, that's a, it's all a relative gain. The best place gets the, gets the price. And so the dollar is the best place. Uh, the world's short dollars, and um, I think when the one wine comes, the dollar goes through the roof. Uh, it's certainly the safe haven. It's the, it's, it's the place... You know, I, I think it's the conservative when trade. When the unwind comes? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm getting to that. Okay. So, obviously, there's a bear market coming, but, you know, the question is when. And what we're seeing is, you know, we've seen the U.S. market go through the roof for the last few years. Nasdaq's gone through the roof. But we've now got big dispersion in the market. So, you've got the weak areas, like commodities, obviously. And anything that's interest rate sensitive, like um, utilities and, and, and real estate, um, and, and telecoms, possibly, and maybe consumer staples. But then, to the upside, you've got the financials that quite like higher rates. And you've got, um, you know, healthcare and you've got um, technology. And so you could actually say that breadth is deteriorating in America, which is warning you the bear market's on the way. But breadth by numbers is, is quite disappointing, but breadth by market cap is still good. 62% of stocks in market cap terms are above their term day moving average. So there's no chance of a bear market whilst that's above 50%. Um, and, and so you can look at the top 10, top 20 US stocks that are above their term day moving averages you know, Apple and Amgen and so on. Um, and, uh, and these guys, it's when these guys crack and you'll start worrying. Not until these guys crack should you worry. Okay, very good. I think it's amazing the transfer of wealth that's happened, and it was most apparent in 2013, but between kind of 2012 and now, in terms of the strong dollar and this boom in US stocks, the transfer of wealth to the United States that's taken place. Yeah, well... It's rational. I mean, money goes to the best place. And the best place is never constant. It's always changing. And that's a function of value and it's a function of quality. Uh, right now, 
there's no other sweet spot. I mean, I can't think of an emerging market. Uh, maybe Iran, and that's quite fun. 314 stocks, $100 billion of market cap. Maybe we should all put our money to Iran. I think we should. We should. How do we buy Iran? I don't know. That's lots of fun, Dominic. I mean, that'd be brilliant, we wouldn't should. it? Can we do an Iran ETF or something? It's open to foreign investors. Go and look at the Tehran Stock Exchange website. Lots of fun. Um, really interesting. This do kind IG of allow you to bet on Iran? Well, they're a bit slow on the uptake, but, you know, give them a, give them a chance. Um, I don't think there's a benchmark. So, you know, the opportunity is to build a benchmark. All that stuff. And presumably there's hardly any debt there. Uh, good question, I assume. And if it is, it would be that funny debt, which is really good, isn't it? You know, whatever they call it. Then um, escapes me. Okay. What do you call that um, Islamic debt? Um, Sharia. Sharia. Sharia, Sharia, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it would be really good debt that you can't possibly default and all that. So, um, so that's great. But back to the point. Money will always find its way. It's like a, it's like water in a, in a river system. It will just find its way to the best place. And it's, the, it's the natural mode. And so when you've got um, America that's growing faster than the rest of the world um, and, 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 and a more flexible, freer economy um, than other large zones uh, with good demographics and so on, then, then it's rational that there's a, there's a more uh, stronger bull market there than anywhere else. And so this cycle's been an American cycle just like the 1990s. Okay, and it's not over yet. I'd say we're kind of three quarters, 80% of the way there, something like that. Yeah. I'm talking about the plunge in commodities, the plunge in gold, the plunge yeah. in silver. Maybe not the rise in the US dollar, but the rise in US stocks. And there'll be a kind of all-round turn at some stage. Yeah, commodities are a warning signal that it's going to everywhere. Um, it's a central function of demand on the other side and so of course there's going to be a bear market everywhere in bonds and equities it's very simple in 2000 to 2002 in the dot-com bear market essentially half the US half the global TMT half the stock market globally which was kind of TMT um, um, was a bubble and to that unwound but everything else was pretty much fine I mean small caps were cheap EM stocks were cheap um, commodities were cheap property was cheap bonds were cheap and so not much money was lost if you're diversified across those asset classes. By 2008, most of those had played out. And it was only government bonds that proved to be a safe haven, and the yen and the dollar, but it was um, just those things. And here we are today, and bonds have played out right across the board. There's no stock market you can look to. Um, so I think that the safe haven is definitely the dollar, possibly the yen. And that's it. Not bonds, not equities, not property. Not gold? Oh, gold would be a safe haven if it gets down before everything else unwinds. So it's a very good point, Dominic. If, if, if gold does its capitulation now and, and gets down to this sort of 800 zone, uh, then I think it's a safe place to be because um, um, everyone, you know, all, all, all the hot money will be out by that point. It'll be fundamentally undervalued and, and, and it'll be, it will continue to be liquid and promising over the long term. So if we get that before the stock market crashes it will indeed be a saver now you were walking from you were doing the what's the name of the walk you did uh, Camino de Santiago there was a film the Camino uh, de Santiago and how long is that walk uh, 776 kilometres there's a film with Martin Sheen called The Way okay and you were doing that walk of 700 and however many kilometres it is while the uh, stock exchange in China was busy crashing what do you make of what's going on in China well, I was a bull. I was an unashamed China bull back in January, and um, and you know that you read that as false. You know, you did. You told me actually in November, December, buy China. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, so it was a great trade. I was surprised by how how quickly it reversed. And I was surprised they had all this policy rubbish to um, 
prop up the market. So um, I came back from Spain and, um, uh, you know, at one point I was up nearly 50% and I think I got out at about a 7% profit. I just thought, I don't need this shit in my life. So, um, <laughs> so, so I closed my position. That's a classic, that's a classic <laughs> fair signal, isn't it? I mean, but are you worried about the kind of great Chinese unwind, or do you think it's over? Yes, overstated? I, 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 no, it's not overstated. It's a question of when. Very hard to time because it's not a free market. Okay. Well, uh, Charlie, thank you very much for talking to us, and it's been a real pleasure. And I'm praying to God that despite the noise of the rain and the cars going past and people getting splashed, while we were talking, there was actually a, a mum with a, her baby clasped close to her chest who got splashed by a passing taxi. So I'm sure an Uber driver wouldn't have done that. Yeah, the most exciting thing about the future, in my opinion, is electric cars. Not that I give a shit about stocks like Tesla, but it's just these bloody cars and lorries are so noisy. And I can't wait to walk down London streets without the racket of the petrol engine. Yeah, and the thing about electric cars and automated electric cars as well, that actually poses a threat to the hegemony of London transport. Um, if there's an automated electric car... It's presumably going to be a robot that can get me a cup of tea worth of sitting at home. I can't wait. So you won't be going into work anyway? Yeah, maybe it's female. <laughs> All right. See no more. <laughs> On that note, now, Charlie, plug your newsletter and plug what you're doing because you're, you're taking steps to take over the world uh, now you've left HSBC. So tell us how you're going to do that. Yeah, I left HSBC in April. Fund manager, I'm very proud of my track record and um, obviously what a wonderful bank it is and um, all that. Um, but... I'm a Bitcoin fanatic. Um, I, I just see this as the next high-growth opportunity on this planet in a world where growth is hard to find. It, it makes total sense for me. And, uh, and the, the amusing example I'll give this week is Ashley Madison, that naughty website. And, and Dominic's promised me he's not on the website. And I, and I can tell you I, I'm... I hadn't even heard of it before this week. And I can tell you I'm not on the website. But... It, I don't, you know the ridiculous thing? I don't actually have the time. Yeah. Doesn't that sound, I just don't... You know, I just don't have the time to go on websites and deal with another load of messages on top of emails and everything else. Get your intern to do it. But the, um, <laughs> but the um, thing about Ashley Madison is that, you know, some hacker has um, stolen all the client data. And you've got to wonder why we give our credit card details to uh, any website, not just Ashley Madison, which is, you know, obviously a naughty one, but, but a nice one like the Times newspaper or what have you. Why do we give our credit card details to all these people to store? And it's a real mystery, and um, perhaps we shouldn't. And had Ashley Madison been built around um, Bitcoin, then there'd be nothing to steal. Very interesting. Outlook for Bitcoin, last thing? Love it. Bear market's finished. Uh, trend is upwards. $300 is resistance. And, um, you know, the day, the day it has a sort of weekly close above 300 sell your house and buy Bitcoins. Seriously? Sell your house? Oh, come on, Come on, so, Dominic, you know that was tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but okay. So we should be... Is that should the best be, Bitcoin to buy now? You should be really, re really, really bullish on Bitcoin of a proper close of about 300. That, that, you know, I, I'm 99% confident the bear market is finished and it's going up. Um, but, but, uh, but my confidence will go to 99.9 um, if we have a proper, sustainable weekly close of about 300. It's just upward. And do you think $1,200 Bitcoin... It's like 850 gold or something. It will just it was a, a huge barrier and then it will just Bitcoin, be forgotten. All the gold in the world is worth $7 trillion or so. And, and all the Bitcoin in the world is worth $4 billion. If people start using Bitcoin, if a couple of sites like Ashley Madison took it on, it would be worth multiples of the current price.
multiples. But they already are. You go on the They're dark not. net. They are. You, you've been. You, and obviously, you're a gentleman of London. You don't go on the dark net. Well, I, I've I, been on the dark net. I've seen what's going on. That is one. That is where Bitcoin use is booming. And all those, all those sites selling all that illegal stuff. Fine, but but it's not big enough to um, take over the world. What we need it is, is though, Charlie. I'm going to argue with you here. Not at the moment it isn't, but it is. It's, we're talking about the illegal narcotics trade. Yeah. It's a huge industry. Yeah. And how many junkies have got access to the internet and understand Bitcoin and all that? Are you telling me that everyone who, t- who, t- who, who smokes a bit of weed or does a line of Charlie or something like that is a, narco- is a, is a junkie? Most people, you know, I don't know what the cocaine consumer numbers are in London, but they're huge. You've worked in the city. I, I work in Soho every day. And the reality is cocaine consumption and... And I think there was an article in the in the um, Guardian this week: uh, ecstasy consumption and LSD consumption among 18 to 24 year olds has just hit record highs. And you go on these dark net sites, you can be absolutely sure of what you're buying. The whole thing is kind of self-regulated, and the whole thing is is the transactions of Bitcoin. Dominic, all I can say is I'm missing out. I'm clearly missing out on life. <laughs> no, but I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> and and clearly, you're having more fun than I am. Now, no, Dominic, would you please show me one of these sites after this interview? Absolutely. And, and, and I would love but to. The point I'm making is that that these sites have been made possible by Bitcoin. Sure. And and it is because booming, it, because booming, Dominic, booming. as we know, it's a cash transaction over the internet. Yeah. And that's a fascinating concept that people haven't woken up to. Yes, people like us have woken up to it, and your listeners have, and so on. But the masses have not. They just don't get how important it is to have cash transactions over the internet. Very good. Plug your newsletter. Oh, yes. Um, Atlas Pulse. Um, just send me an email, atlaspulse at gmail.com, and, um, and I'll add you the list. Thank you very much. Charlie Morris, thank you very much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 